All right, good morning. Good morning. If you could head back to your seats, that would be great. All right. Well, we are starting a new sermon series today. It's called Reconstructing Faith. Um, we're going to look at the role of doubt and disillusionment uh, in the journey of faith and how it can actually helpfully, as we helpfully work through these places in our life, we can find hope and peace and and maybe a newfound strength because we were able to get through what we got through, right? Now, some of you might be thinking, <clears throat> doubt is a really odd follow-up to Easter, right? Um, and that's true. Um, last week, we had this great celebration of Easter, and we, it's just an amazing day for us Christians. But if you really look, what's going, look at what's going on in the, in the biblical story with the disciples at the time of Jesus, there really isn't an Easter party going on in the story. Uh, I think oftentimes we don't think about the day after um, he, he was raised and, and the, the, days, the few days after that for the disciples. The truth is they, they probably weren't doing a lot of hooping and hollering. That's not where, where they were at. Uh, the Holy Week for them was a wreck. They had these grand ideas about what Jesus was and how, how all he was going to become. And, um, and those grand ideas never included him being arrested and killed. That wasn't a part of it, even if Jesus had warned them about it, right? They just weren't on the same page there. And when it happened, it spun them completely sideways. It really disrupted their lives. They, they just weren't sure what they were going to do. They ran off for their lives, Right? And then comes the rumors that Jesus had been spotted alive. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> what is that about? No, when the, when the disciples are uh, celebrating Easter, they aren't having a party. They are in a locked room, and they're scared to death, and they're, they're wondering what's going on. And even, even Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas, he's actually the one that's maybe the most honest about what he was feeling, he refused to believe in the resurrection, even though that there was eyewitness accounts of seeing this risen Jesus. That wasn't good enough for him. He wanted more. And why did the disciples have such a struggle with the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, remember the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus? Um, they were actually talking about Jesus to Jesus, and they didn't recognize who he was. Um, and they were actually explaining what had happened to Jesus, to Jesus. It's kind of an interesting story. In Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 20, it says the chief priests, the, they're explaining this to Jesus, that the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And, and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. What does that mean? Our women were crazy, right? Um, they went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. Um, you, you notice that these two guys that are walking along the road with Jesus, they've heard everything that's happened, right? They have all of the details of what has happened. And yet they're having a really difficult time putting all the pieces together, aren't they? 
And what was their approach to find out what was going on? Were they looking for this risen Jesus? No, they were actually walking away from Jerusalem. They're going home like, like they've given up, right? They've lost hope. It was just too big of a step in their faith journey to figure this out. What in the world is going on with Jesus? This, their faith is having a difficult time, right? I mean, think about it. Have you ever been in a place where your faith has been stretched or maybe your faith has been damaged in some way and, and you just don't know, way, don't know which way to turn? You're looking at all the pieces. You're struggling to make sense of it all. Maybe it's a preconceived idea, much like the disciples. Uh, maybe you have this idea in your head about what should have happened, and it just didn't turn out the way that you thought it should, right? And it's causing some doubt to creep into your life. I mean, what's God doing with this? Do we ever get so entrenched in an idea about God, maybe about life, and when that idea gets challenged, it not only throws us for a loop, but it actually causes our whole faith system to be disrupted, shaken. How about the first time you saw someone in the church acting like a hypocrite? Someone who weren't, you, you trusted maybe, that wasn't acting as they should. As a kid, when I saw one of my elders who I looked up to being mean to someone else, I mean, it threw me for a loop, honestly. I didn't know what to do with that. Or even when I first heard stories of the Church Universal acting badly from time to time over the last 2,000 years, I mean, those are my people now, right? Or maybe, maybe it was a, a, a personal tragedy when something horrible happened and, and God didn't seem to deliver, right? These are real things that affect us, things that we just can't sweep under the rug and hope it all goes away, things that we have to struggle through. So how do we go about the work of reconstructing our faith, putting our faith back together after a difficult turn in our lives? Or even how do we help others who've been struggling? How do we work through these things, these difficult things, and find hope again in a healthy way? And that really is the hope of this series that we're starting into, to find some tools to help us um, find our way through these kinds of times. Uh, maybe you're not in one right now, maybe someone else in your life is, and you're trying to figure out how to walk alongside of them and help them um, find their way through that. Either way, it's a really good practice, really good for us to look at how God, in the biblical stories, treats people who doubt. Have you ever looked around for that in Scripture? In fact, that actually is one thing that I really love about the Bible, um, the Bible does not mince words, does it? Uh, there, there's no holding back. <laughs> there's no holding, hiding the ugly in the Bible. It is so true to life. It's almost too true to life. We don't want to look at that, thank God. And, and so it doesn't surprise me at all to see in the Bible several major characters, major characters in, this, in the stories of the Bible, not only have flaws, but they also deal with doubt. We've been talking about Peter the last few weeks, and Peter definitely is not immune to doubt. I mean, you think about Peter's story in John 18. We see the story when, when Jesus is being arrested. And what does Peter do? 
Well, Peter's Peter. He's going to be brash and bold, right? So what does he do? He pulls out a sword. He chops a guy's ear off, right? John 18, verse 10, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And yet Peter doesn't get applauded by Jesus. He gets reprimanded by Jesus. So the next verse, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not think, drink the cup the Father has given me? And we've looked at the story from that point on for Peter. And, and for whatever reason, this episode, this situation, he goes from being super strong, cutting a guy's ear off, to being wimpy. He's not Peter at all later on in the story, right? I mean, he follows behind the detachment of soldiers who have arrested Jesus. Um, but as we've talked about, Peter is just never able to be Peter. In fact, he can't even stand up to a servant girl in the next scene, right? Something has gotten to Peter. What is it? <laughs> you want to know what I think happened to Peter? Same thing that he struggled with multiple other times that we see in the New Testament. Uh, he never could reconcile this idea that the Messiah, the coming Savior, could ever be arrested and killed. His idea of the Messiah was a, a warrior Savior, right? A, a king Savior, and, and he would come and fight and set us free. And it's this difference in the belief that he had in his brain that caused Peter to question literally everything. He just couldn't get that all the different details of that story together, right? And yet it's very important to note how Jesus responded to Peter's struggle. Does, does Jesus just go up and, and, and give up on Peter? Well, no, right? Jesus actually goes after Peter. He finds Peter. Three chapters later in John chapter 21, where does Jesus find Peter? Well, Peter's back fishing, I mean, if you're completely distraught and you just don't, you don't get life, where are you going to go? Back to what you're used to doing. And Peter was a fisherman. John 21, verse 3, it says, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't such a good fisherman. Uh, verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. You guys recognize that story? That's the exact same story, that's the exact same thing that Jesus did to Peter in the very beginning of their relationship, right? When Peter, when Jesus is introducing himself to Peter in the first place. Jesus is reminding Peter of that moment when he met Jesus, that moment when, when Peter was called by Jesus, right? And then we see this beautiful moment when Jesus not only forgives Peter, but actually calls him back to serve, to take care of Jesus' sheep, to go and invest and lead the people, Right? This guy who struggled so greatly, and yet Jesus is still inviting him back in? Peter's doubt did not cause Jesus to waver in his belief in Peter, right? And this is just one of the stories in Scripture that includes doubt. 
Some of the other doubters that we see in Scripture, I mean, the list is huge. How about Elijah, the great prophet in 1 Kings 19? Or how about John the Baptist in Luke 7? I've already mentioned Thomas, doubting Thomas in John 20. How about David in Psalm 22? Or even the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15? I mean, that's just to name a few, and these are major characters in Scripture, right? I mean, has anyone ever heard of Gideon before? The list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Almost all of them, almost every character in the Bible, actually, has struggled with doubt, at least at some point in their life. And how does God respond to them? With great patience. That's our God, right? And by the way, not only patience, but God still includes them as really important people in serving his purposes. Isn't that amazing? Paul commands Jude in Jude 1, verse 22. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. And I think that really actually sums up what God thinks about people who are struggling with doubt. Doubt is a real thing. And like it or not, doubt seems to be pretty common <laughs> in the faith journey. Almost, almost a prerequisite, actually, of being used by God fully. Because otherwise, <laughs> maybe your God isn't big enough, right? I mean, think about it. As God speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the righteous their, their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. That's our God, right? And to our God, for he will freely pardon. And, and God says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Should it really surprise us that our God is bigger than us, that our God is wiser than us, that our God is greater than us, <laughs> that we don't get everything that he's trying to do? In fact, the opposite would probably be true, right? It makes sense that we don't make sense of everything that he does. He's so much bigger than us, right? I mean, who's the limited one in the relationship? Is it him? No, it's us, right? That's us. And sometimes it takes a bit to get on the same page with him. Let me remind you, it's us getting on his page, not him getting on our page, right? That's our job, getting on his page. So again, don't freak out if you have some doubt. It could just be God being bigger, and our human brains just aren't there yet, right? I mean, it's like computer processing, right? We just need a little bit more time processing in order for us to get to the place where we can actually figure this out, <laughs> where we can reconstruct our faith. In fact, we see with Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, over and over again, he says these words. You, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. <laughs> Look at Matthew 5, verse 21. It says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, 
that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you know what else he does? He does the exact same thing in verse 31, 33, 38, and 43. And in all of those instances, Jesus is quoting Old Testament commands, and he seems to be tweaking them, right? You've heard it said, but I actually say this. Now, now is Jesus saying that God got it wrong in the Old Testament? No, the tweak doesn't actually need to happen to the original command. It's actually us trying to figure out what God's trying to say. Let me, let me explain it a little bit better for you so that you get what God desires from this command. It's what Jesus is saying, right? If we want to know what's really going on, we don't just make up the answers. We actually go to the original source, right? To God. Remember that at the time of Jesus, the religious rulers had already concocted all sorts of rules, right? That would help the people truly live into, as per their human understanding, what God really wanted from the original commands, right? Humanity is exceptionally good at tweaking the rules so that we understand them well, right? Even if we have to tweak them so that we like the, the rules, <laughs> right? And when we get stuck on some of those thought patterns in our lives, when we have tweaked the command the wrong direction because of our own thoughts, we can end up ultimately, think about it, in really a fully man-made religious system following rules that we made up <laughs> rather than having a relationship with the Creator. Think that could happen? Look at the conversation Jesus had with the Pharisees in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replies with a question, because that's what Jesus does, Right? And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, the spirit of the original law that Jesus is talking about is that, that kids should take responsibility for their needy parents, right? But the teachers of the law had created a loophole for themselves. They got, they got out of that requirement by finding this loophole where if they devoted something to God, that that something couldn't be used to help your parents anymore. It had to be used for God. So all you had to do was devote it to God, and then you could keep it for yourself. <laughs> Isn't that a great plan? They had created a rule to keep them from actually following the heart of the command, right? 
which was to love God and love your neighbor. They were using God, actually, as the scapegoat to avoid doing what God wanted. You see that? Would that ever happen? (laughs) It happens, doesn't it? How does Jesus respond? Verse 7, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, what's most important, are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. They've gotten there, right? I mean, these are harsh words from Jesus, aren't they? Well, rightly so. These religious leaders had made it clear that keeping their traditions was more important than keeping, than obeying God's word. So if you think about it, they really had no business being God's watchdogs, right? Protecting his sacred interests because all they were interested in was themselves. And this is a dangerous game to play, isn't it? When you start tweaking, tweaking the commands of God to, to serve yourself with them, twisting the words of God to fit your own agenda. I mean, you think through human history and man has twisted the words of God to justify all sorts of horrible, horrible stuff. The Crusades, the Inquisition, cultural cleansing, slavery. I mean, there's just all sorts of things over the last 2,000 years that Christianity has been perverted to justify horrible things. And imagine how God feels about that. (laughs) Those are serious offenses to God. And think about those who actually sat under those teachers of the law, the ones who were twisting all the rules, right? When they discovered that their teachers weren't actually pure towards God, right? And this is sometimes where doubt comes in, where disillusionment comes in, when when those people that you were counting on, that you were trusting in, and they're, they're not who they said they were, right? We feel duped in some ways. How could I have completely missed the boat on what God wanted? And could it happen again? Things start spiraling, right? Doubt, disillusionment. Think about this. When this happens, our way out is not to better think up good rules, right? What is our way out? How do we get out of the spiral of focusing on our own agenda? It's actually to go back to God, to return to the source, right? We don't need to think up better rules. We actually need to go back to God, to return to Scripture. That's where we need to go, isn't it? I mean, don't forget that even with Peter, Jesus had told him multiple times what was going to happen and that Jesus was going to die. He was going to be raised back to life. I mean, it wasn't that God had somehow changed his plan that was confusing Peter, right? Peter had just missed the plan. He couldn't see it. He couldn't even respond to it. He, and his idea of what was supposed to happen, it didn't line up with God's idea. And this is a huge part of how we healthfully respond to God. As you look at issues of doubt in Scripture, the person struggling with doubt who comes out on the other side healthier and more able to be used by God, 
their process isn't to think through the faith process and better develop their man-made thought processes, right? Again, it's actually the opposite of that. We don't need to think more. We need to think less. We actually need to spend more time with who? With Jesus. That's where we get the correct information. More time spent in Scripture. More time spent with the Father. Even more time spent with the believers that we trust. Right? Rediscovering the truth over against our ideas about the situation. Reconstructing our faith not on our ideas, but on the truth, right? And this is where some of us have gotten confused. There's actually a movement that seems to be growing in popularity, <laughs> and it's called deconstruction. You ever heard of deconstruction? What they encourage is when you run across a difficult thing in your faith system, instead of needing to kind of reconstruct your faith and kind of maybe tear down a wall or two, they actually suggest <laughs> that you just completely deconstruct your faith. Just tear it all down. Tear it all out. You start with completely walking away from everything that you've ever known. Now, you think about it, in a remodel job, you never go in and just tear the whole house down and start tearing out the foundation, right? That's not a remodel. <laughs> But that's what they're suggesting. And they suggest that you build your house back on all the ideas that make sense to you. This is, this is a process that they actually sometimes call deconversion. Picking through and critiquing every single idea within the belief system and then rethinking it to make sure that every idea aligns with cultural acceptability and ultimately, what I, what I believe to be true, right? It's what they're trying to build it back into. It, what I would choose, <laughs> rather than about the Word of God, about <laughs> Jesus. I mean, you can see how this is very dangerous, right? Tim Keller writes about this movement that, that, that we don't just... On a remodel job, you don't just go in and bulldoze everything in a quest of an understanding. In a normal remodel job, according to Tim Keller, he says parts of the building, especially the foundation itself, are left intact while other parts are taken down or removed in order to put up a, an overall better edifice. I mean, thinking through the parts that you missed, maybe, right? Now, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't ever consider what the foundation is, because I think that is actually a really important thing that we need to do at times, right? Something that we ought to do as we grow in our walk with the Lord, make sure the foundation is on the rock <laughs> instead of the sand, right? It's something that we often see as parents or even experience as teens who grew up in the church and we're working on making our faith our own and rather than just believing what we've been told, we're actually processing through and doing some research and making sure that what what our parents told us is what we believe, right? There's kind of a natural process of making sure the house is built on the rock, right? As Jesus put it. But we do this in, in an expressed purpose to make sure that we're actually following God. That's the whole purpose, isn't it? 
instead of man-made rules. We need God to be a part of this process, don't we? The truth is that we all like to believe that we're on the right side of any argument that centers around Christianity. We all think that we have all the great ideas in our heads, and we don't need anyone else. We don't need God to tell us. We, we got it figured out. When we look at the biblical stories, it's easy for us to say, certainly I wouldn't have been uptight about hand-washing, right? Certainly I, I would know that taking care of my needy parents is more important than church rules, Right? Certainly, I'd be on Team Jesus rather than being more like those religious leaders. I can tell the difference. Well, <laughs> we all like to think we're on the right side, right? On Jesus' side. But we need to be careful that we are not <laughs> leaning into religious traditions, cultural pressure to determine how we live out our faith. Like the Pharisees, like the disciples, we don't always see the forest or the trees, right? Things are sometimes confusing and not clear. We don't, <laughs> we aren't all-knowing, are we? How do we determine what is cultural and what is steadfast instruction as we interpret the Bible? If we follow the example of the many doubters of the Bible, and there's lots of them, Elijah, John the Baptist, Thomas, David, Jeremiah that we've mentioned before, we notice that the truth is never found by abandoning God. The truth is found when we honestly lay our concerns, our fatigue, our confusion, our doubts, our fears at his feet. And when you really think about it, that, that takes some humility, right? Just admitting, you know what? There is someone out there that's smarter than I am, bigger than I am, wiser. And he probably even cares more about me than I do myself, right? What do we see in Scripture? In our battle with doubt, we have to start with more of God, more of Jesus, more of Scripture, not less. We don't walk away and try to find our way back. It doesn't work that way. We will never be able to base our lives on the truth if the truth is not a part of the process. Does that make sense? A very refreshing story of humility and changing faith and changing beliefs. It's a very recent story, actually, of, of Rick Warren. You guys know who Rick Warren is? The last 42 years, he's been the pastor of Saddleback in, in California, Southern Baptist Church. He's written, written several award-winning bestsellers. Um, I think what's his biggest seller, The Purpose Driven Life, I think, is... One of his big stories, big books, he's a celebrated pastor in the United States. And yet within the last year, he's been a pastor 42 years, he made a huge shift in his own belief system. One that ultimately actually ended with his whole church being kicked out of the denomination. 
Some, that's a major shift, right? That's a major, major deal. What was the issue? Women in ministry. Have you guys read about this? He'd always believed that the Bible taught that women could not be pastors. <clears throat> why, why did he make such a drastic change in his life is the question, right? Well, he actually tells the story in Christianity Today in an article dated March 16th, 2023, this last month. If you want to read it, I'd, I'd, I'd invite you to go look the interview up. It's really fascinating. As he tells the story, first off, Rick, Rick wanted to make sure that others understood that, that his reasons for changing his mind weren't based on pressure, culture changing, um, seeing successful women in ministry, seeing lots of women pastors who were successful. But that didn't change his mind. Um, even his view of Scripture hadn't changed. But what had changed was that he was confronted in Scripture by different passages that he wasn't even looking for. He was actually doing a study on how the early church grew so fast. And he wasn't even looking for these passages, yet several passages of Scripture that, that he had read several times, lots of different times, suddenly jumped out off the page at him. And it had to do with women and ministry. The first one that he mentions is, is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus calls, calling his disciples to go, make disciples, baptize, teach. And Rick says in the article, you can't say the first two commands to go and make disciples are for men and women, but then go on and say that the last two, baptize and teach, are only for ordained men. When you study scripture, that's called eisegesis, and it's, it's a problem. And he says, who authorized women to teach? Jesus. All authority is given to me, therefore teach. All authority is given to me, therefore baptize. I had to repent when I actually looked at the Great Commission. The second one was the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. He's looking up this passage, he's reading about it, and all of a sudden, this just pops off the page that not only men were in the upper room, right? There were women there that were filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and started preaching. And the prophecy of Joel that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, says, In the last day, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. All being a big word there, Right? Your, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, <laughs> I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And Warren says, I've looked at over 300 commentaries on these, these verses. And it's interesting to me that almost everybody goes, yep, in the church, everybody gets to pray, everybody gets to preach, everybody gets to prophesy. And the people who don't like that, ignore that verse. <laughs> and he says John MacArthur doesn't even cover that verse. He just skips it altogether. He doesn't even talk about it. The third passage that, he, that got his attention was what he calls the very first Christian sermon. When Mary Magdalene goes and tells the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the grave, right? God chose a woman 
to, to deliver the news to the men. So Warren says, can a woman teach an apostle? <laughs> Evidently, <laughs> Jesus did it on the first day. He chose her to be the first preacher of the gospel. Now, I'm not actually here trying to push an issue, but this is a great example of someone that, <laughs> that spends time with God the Father, that spends time in the Word. And he wasn't argued into the right thinking, right? Because he spent time with the original source, with God, and looking at truth in his word, we find that God can actually teach an old dog new tricks. And that's good news, isn't it? We need his help to understand what he wants us to do. The truth is that our pursuit of Jesus can get entangled with man-made systems that do not reflect the gospel or the hope of Christ. And so we have to, we have to continue in this pursuit of Christ. A life in Christ is not meant to be lived within man-made parameters. We follow God, not systems of, of belief. If the life of Christ is in opposition to cultural or, or religious systems, what do we abandon? We abandon the systems, not God. I don't hear an amen to that. <laughs> it's true, right? So our first step in reconstructing our faith, the first step in dealing with our doubt, is again, returning to the original source. Returning to God. <laughs> Spending more time with him and not less. Spending more time in scripture, not less. Spending more time with other believers who can mentor us and encourage us, not less, right? When we struggle with that, we need to separate the truth of Jesus from the broken system. Whatever it is that we're believing, that's not true, right? So now as we continue on the series, we're going to add some more steps to that. But this is a crucial one, a really, really important one, right? So where are you in this? I don't know if you've ever had moments of doubt, struggles, knowing, trying to understand what God's trying to do with me, why he didn't fix that situation, whatever it is. How do we handle those moments? Are we willing to make an investment of more time with him? If you know someone struggling, how might you encourage them to invest more time with the Lord? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all to be struggling with God and then walk away from him. It's not how you find your way back, right? First Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Is that true? 
We don't have to know all the answers to find hope, find peace with God. Who, by the way, our God is always rooting for us, isn't he? He's always there. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are so thankful for your word. So thankful that you provide us truth. Truth that we can rely on. We don't have to base things on our own opinions, our own thoughts. We need your word in our lives. We need to be encouraged by the God that we see in Scripture. God who's not afraid of doubt. The God who's willing to actually walk alongside of people who are broken. Help them find hope and peace. Not only that, but to actually use them to invest in the world, to make a difference in people. People who doubt. People who are struggling. Lord, we are so thankful that you are a God who is so patient and loving and full of grace and mercy. Lord God, would you just help us as we have moments of doubt. Remember, <laughs> to find hope, we need you. To find our way through it, we need to spend more time with you. You help us to remember that in those dark moments. Lord, if there's someone in our lives that we, maybe their, their name has come to mind in this moment, Lord, would we just take on that thought that maybe you are sending us to them to be an encouragement, to be a hope for them. Would you guide us and lead us as your people as we trust in you? We will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. you stand with me as we close? Our benediction passage is from Philippians chapter 4. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, by hanging out with God, right? Present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. People of God, we are a blessed people. And we serve a God who is so much bigger, so much wiser, so much kinder, so much of everything, right? And he's always with us, even when we don't fully understand what he is doing, even when we doubt. And he can even use us in incredible ways in this world. So this week... Let's continue to put our hope not in a system of, of belief, but a God who loves and cares for us. Let's lean on him, and let's find ways to be an encouragement to others, shall we? May God work in your hearts as you trust in him. You are sent.